Hi, this is Ian Harvey, Toka US Brand Manager. I'm here with Rosie Frankowski. Rosie's a 2018 Olympian uh, from Pyeongchang. She's done, she's had 23 World Cup and Olympic starts. She was 21st in Pyeongchang in the 30K Classic, which is um, actually not her better technique. She's usually better in skate. Um, she's known as being super fit and strong and super friendly. Um, so thanks for being here with me, Rosie. It's a pleasure. You're in Girdwood. Just finished a, a mountain adventure where you get surprised by a bear and you were <laughs> yeah. caught without bear spray. So uh, <laughs> you're definitely awake for this interview. That's great. Oh, yes, definitely. <laughs> so I wanted to start out by asking you where you grew up and how you started ski racing. Okay. Well, so I grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, I spent you know, my school years there. I actually spent a lot of my summers up in northern Minnesota in Lutzen, which is on the North Shore. Um, basically, it's right on Lake Superior. Um, and so I lived there like with my grandmother in the in the summers. But um, I started skiing in high school, actually, I had, I played volleyball in middle school. And my freshman year of high school, I tried out for the volleyball team and made the freshman team. Um, I'm five one. So like, that should factor into like how much volleyball skills I had, if you can think about it. Um, but then that winter, I wanted to do traveling volleyball, like on a club team. Um, and my parents were like, that is so expensive. Um, no, we spent every winter, or excuse me, every weekend in the winter up at, in Lutzen, where my parents were building a house. And me and my sister were required to like work on the house with them. So they were just not into it. And they told me I could choose any sport in high school like through the Minneapolis High School League, and that would be fine. So of course I was like, well, what's the most expensive winter sport? And I thought, oh, skiing, you have to buy these skis. And you know, growing up in Minnesota, cross-country skiing was on my radar. Like I knew about it. I had done it a couple times, like just touring where you like shuffle on classic skis, but I had never skate skied and I had never raced or my family wasn't involved in that. Um, I did downhill ski quite a bit and had done like a kind of club team, which now my downhill skiing on Nordic skis is pretty bad. So people would laugh, but I started Nordic skiing that winter. So my freshman year and um, my friends were really fast. They were like people who had skied most of their lives. So I immediately was like gun ho. I want to keep up with my, my two best girlfriends that were on the team who were literally like one of them, her name's Libby Ellis. She was one of the best people in Minnesota state. So like I had my work cut out for me. Um, so I learned how to ski that year, made the varsity team by the last race, but I was like eighth on varsity. So I didn't get to race at sections or anything. And then um, realized that maybe volleyball wasn't in the cards for me. And so I did track that spring. And in track, I actually was a hurdler for the first year. So I did a hundred meter hurdles. And again, being five one, I don't know why I did all these sports that like it would really help to be tall, but whatever the good news is at the end of track season someone was like hey you should run you should do the two mile at this meet and i was like two miles that's a really long way but i did it and i did quite well for like having it be my first time and i immediately realized wow i need to be a distance athlete like i need to distance run and so i joined cross country running that fall and um started you know the endurance sport trifecta i think that a lot of kids do where it's running skiing track and um, then by my sophomore year of skiing, I knew how to ski. I was in much better shape than I had been in previously doing running all summer instead of volleyball. And 
I kind of had more of one of those breakout years you'd call. And so I, my team made the state, we qualified for state. I finished like 15th in state, which that was a really big deal to me because it meant I was all state. And, you know, this was really cool. I'd never been that good at a sport. Um, and so then I kind of, you know, I turned into a skier. And so I skied then the, the next two years in high school, um, getting progressively better. And then my senior year, I started doing the junior national qualifiers. And I traveled with my friend Libby's family to all the races. My parents um, were not very involved in skiing and um, made the junior national team and went to Truckee, California. And that was a huge deal to me because I'd never been to California. I had I hadn't really flown on a plane that much. Um, you know, the whole thing was just like eye-opening. I had been to the mountains before a little bit, but not not in the winter ever and not to like the mountains of California. And the whole experience was like, oh, I want to do this and I want to do this in college. And so leading up to that, I had started looking at schools that had ski teams. Um, I wasn't that good, uh, to be honest, in those Truckee Junior Nationals in one of the races, I was like a hundredth. So I really, I was not an athlete that was getting recruited or anything like that. And, um, but I was determined to walk onto a ski team and then simultaneously, academics were really important to my family, and I was really focused on school. So I had, um, you know, really, I was looking for a school that would offer academics um, and potentially like an academic scholarship, which a lot of schools have based on different grade point averages and things. And then a ski team that would allow me to walk on. And luckily, um, at NMU, I was able to do that my freshman year. So kind of a I didn't, I wasn't one of those star athletes recruited, but I was able to then go on to ski in college. So that's fascinating. That's a really unusual path for someone who's as, as, as is as successful as you have been and are. That's really unusual. That's amazing. Yeah, thank you. Well, it, I had amazing, the good thing that really stuck with me and has, I think, helped my whole career is that I was in this program in high school that was super well coached. Um, and also really focused on team. Like it was never about the individual. We had this varsity girls team that from my sophomore year to my junior year um, was super gung-ho about trying to win state. And we never accomplished it, but it really put like, um, you know, we all wanted each other to get better. And then also growing up, Libby Ellis like was one of my best friends. And so we, you know, I learned how to train from her and from her mom who was also a really great athlete in the state and did like would do um, podium in the Sealy Hills classic and things. So she was, you know, very, she knew what she was doing. And we got involved actually with before the Lopet foundation was the Lopet foundation. It was go training under Piat Benardsky. And he started also kind of coaching and I started doing his summer program about my senior year. Mm -hmm. And so I had a really great, like, um, you know, group of people that were kind of helping to bring me up through that and make it about fun and make it about team um, and hard work, like very, very hard work focused. Um, but it what didn't, you know, it was never about like glory or about success. So it really you know, appealed to me because I felt like I was always progressing and getting better. And then I had the support system between my friends and my coaches that made it fun every day. So I was very lucky. Cool. So I was talking with Stan the other day, and he told me you were pretty, like, pretty strong. I think it was talking about your freshman year, and you went home for the summer, and he gave you kind of a strength emphasis. 
and you came back and you could do something like 80 dips or something crazy? Like well, I think, well, he has a little bit mixed up. Well, okay, so he, so I went to NMU then that freshman year and I, along with another teammate, was cut that spring and we were devastated. And I was like going to try to switch schools because I really wanted to ski in college and continue that. But I had an academic scholarship at NMU that was too good to, to be true. And um, in my family, you had to pay for college like the individual did. So of course, I didn't want to give up. I had a full ride academically. And that was like, you know, when you have that, you don't want to give that up if you are going to have to pay out of your own money. So, um, so I was very determined to stay at NMU. And luckily, Sten granted me and my teammate Molly another chance. He said, I'll give you the summer and you got to come back and you got to be so strong. You got to be able to run a 3k at this pace. We always do a 3k time trial at NMU. And like, you have to be able to keep up with the top girls on the team. And if you can't, then, then you're gone. So we went back that summer and I actually went, I um, studied abroad in Mexico for two months that summer in essentially central Mexico with like the highlands and lived at like 10,000 feet in Guanajuato. And it was, I was training in Mexico, just running up and down these mountains. I didn't have roller skis. And looking back, it was 2010. So it was like the high of the like drug cartels and all those things. And I would wake up at 5 a.m. before school and go run. And then I do like all these like, you know, kind of like, I guess, jumping exercises, like jumping lunges and push-ups and trying to like be a skier in Mexico, trying to explain to the people that would see me what I was doing, which was really unusual for Mexican culture. And it was just like such a, it really tested my dedication to the sport. But anyways, then that went back that summer and for the rest of it was in Minneapolis and just worked for lack of better words, worked my ass off. Like it was a really hard summer. Um, and then came back in the fall and had clearly made a jump. And what also contributed that to that was the summer before I went to college, um, July and August, I had mono and I was just like wrecked by mono. So I was one of those people who was sleeping like 17 hours a day um, and then went to NMU and of course was out of shape because I hadn't trained for six weeks. And I not only hadn't trained, but I had like slept basically the whole time. And then all throughout my first um, couple months at NMU, it was a huge jump in training. I was out of shape. I wasn't used to it. And I wasn't used to like being in college and frankly, like trying to balance, um, training and school, which I like was really dedicated to my studies. So it was something really important to me. And then I also was like trying to get involved in all these extracurriculars to be the good college student. And so it was just like a lot. I hadn't learned yet how to balance all those things in my life. But the thing that Sten's talking about is I, Coincident, I had, so that sophomore year, I tore a ligament in my knee and I had knee surgery and I was on crutches in the spring. And I was determined to do the strength test, even though I was on crutches because the strength test was mostly upper body stuff. And what they don't tell you about being on crutches is you get really strong. Yeah. And so I came back and I had a knee brace on. I couldn't, I literally couldn't walk. And I pumped out like 60 dips in a minute or something and like more pull-ups than I had ever done and, and tons of push-ups, which I could still do even with my brace on my knee. And Sten was just like, how did this happen? And so the trick actually is that I was on crutches for three months and I crutched everywhere, like with a backpack on full of all my textbooks because I had to get to class. So I was essentially doing like weighted dips 
the whole day because I had a backpack on and I was on crutches, which like you use your arms. And so I got really, really strong, <laughs> but I don't think there was actually any secret. I think it was like a lot of hard work. <laughs> so that's a funny story. I, I wonder if uh, someone's going to hear this and then on go for some walks around the neighborhood, you know? I know. Well, I've always said, you know, a lot of people like, uh, like Hannah Halverson was on crutches after um, her accident last year. And I was telling her, I'm like, Hannah, and Hannah's extraordinarily strong already, but yeah, she is. I was like, you, you shouldn't be worried about losing your upper body strength. Like crutches are literally the, like, they are amazing for that. Like we honestly should use them as exercises. <laughs> so. <laughs> cool. Okay. So after NMU, you went to Anchorage and APU. You had never lived in Alaska before that, right? No, so, I. Um, so tell me why Alaska, why Anchorage, why APU, the whole the whole thing. Yeah, well, so um, during my time in college, I like got better and better, and then in 2014, I made the under 23 world champs team and got to go to Europe for the first time, and that was phenomenal. Um, like I had never been to Europe, and so it was very eye-opening. And we were in Italy in. Um, well, we were in Trentino. I'm trying to think. Belde Fiamme. So it was, and we had amazing snow. It was like a really, it was a good winter there. And um, spent time in Toblock before that. And so I kind of realized like, oh, I, I like am interested in the skiing thing. I had never thought I would ski past college until that year. And then kind of realized like, this is really cool. And I could do this more. And so um, I started looking for programs around the U.S. that would fit that I could go to. And I kind of had two ideas. One was Sun Valley in Idaho and the other was APU. And I had never been to Alaska. So that was a, like a little bit of a issue at first. I was like, but then I heard spring series were in Alaska and I went to, went up to Anchorage and that spring series was amazing in Anchorage. Like we had amazing weather. And I just was like, this place is incredible. There's mountains everywhere there's snow, it's, there's light. It was March, so there's light a lot of the day. Oh, yeah. um, and of course, APU's team was like stacked. I mean, I had never talked to Keegan Randall, but I of course knew who she was. And um, after the 30K of that spring series, uh, Sadie Bjornsson and Rosie Brennan came up to me and, and I like had never spoken to them, but I knew who they were. And, um, and they're like, we hear you wanna join our team. And I was just like starstruck. I was like, ah, oh, yeah, um, yeah, I, it's really nice here. And Sadie was like, you should join. You should go talk to Eric right now. And I, I like had been trying to get in touch with Eric, but he's busy. And um, I had never really talked to him. And I was just like, okay. So I run into Eric on the ski trails at Hilltop during the men's 50K that he's like half coaching, half feeding during. And he literally just says, you're interested in a APU? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, okay, give me a call. Like, uh, we'll talk. And I was like, okay. Um, so I flew home from Anchorage and I'm determined now to go APU. And I'm at, in Marquette and I was in, I graduated in four years of my undergrad, but I did a fifth year at NMU and was in the middle of my master's. So that's like during the time frame. So I finally get a call through to Eric in April and he's like, yeah, you can join our team, but you got to be here in a week. And I was like, wait, what? Like in Alaska in a week? Like I'm in Michigan right now. Like, I don't even know if that's possible to get there if I don't fly. But so I booked a plane ticket to Alaska. I called my parents and I said, I'm moving to Alaska. And they thought it was a joke. <laughs> and oh. I was like, no, I'm, 
I literally have a plane ticket for a week from now. Like I'm going to Alaska. And my mom was like, where are you going to live? And I was like, I'm going to figure that out. And so I call Eric and I like kind of say, okay, I like need a place to live. I don't have a car. I don't know anybody in the state really. And he's like, well, become a student. You can live at the APU ski house and um, you can work towards a master's. And I'm like, well, that's great, but I'm halfway through a master's already. And he's like, well, it's an option. So I, I decided I'll start a second master's um, in business administration. And I flew to Alaska, moved into the ski house and um, started training with APU. And my first night, Tyler Cornfield picked me up from the airport. He's like the one person I knew in Anchorage, dropped me off at the ski house. I literally didn't even have bedding. So I just took all the clothes out of my suitcase and put them on top of me in this, I was staying alone in this like uh, campus apartment basically and slept with all my clothes on top of me to stay warm. Oh. And in the morning I walked upstairs to the ski house has a upstairs duplex and downstairs and Rosie Brennan lived upstairs. And I was like, Hey, can I go to training with you? And she's like, sure. So she drove me to training. She gave me some toast and I was like on the team. So it was, it was one of those things where I am so glad I did that. But at the time I was terrified and I just jumped in with two feet and did what, what I thought I had to do. <laughs> so that is a fantastic story. It was crazy. It was, it was, it was terrifying. I'll be honest at the time, sure. but now I look back and I just laugh. <laughs> but knowing you, it, it kind of fits. Yeah. It fit, it fit the, my entire, like, life in the skiing. And I mean, there is other things I did know, like the big thing that the draw for me with APU over the other programs was that it had a super strong women's team. And I had come from a super strong women's team at NMU. And so I knew that I really wanted that kind of environment. Yeah. And then I also knew that Eric was like a phenomenal coach um, and had coached, you know, all these elite level athletes. So I, I had a lot of faith that like it was going to work out. I just didn't know the particulars of how it would work out in terms of like where you live and stuff. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about Eric. Uh, to me, he's pretty unique in the United States as a coach, his, his style. He's also very knowledgeable, but he doesn't necessarily thrust his knowledge on you. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to hear about um, how it's, how, what it's like to be coached by Eric. Yeah, well, it's, um, I mean, he is a phenomenal coach. Um, I, I have like, I feel like I've had all these different coaches in my life that have like influenced me in different ways. And I think probably the best or one of the things that I love about APU is that Eric is so lets the individual kind of drive their training and drive how, how skiing's going to work, not only in their life, but even like your goals, you know, he never sits down and says, I mean, basically APU is a team to have elite level goals and to qualify for the Olympics and the world cup. But he never dictates like what road you have to take to get there, which is really helpful for me as someone who's a little bit unconventional. I mean, I also just have had an unconventional start to skiing and then, you know, went and skied in college and then progressed to kind of the World Cup super, like, you know, super tour to the World Cup level. And so I didn't have this like, I wasn't on the US ski team with like all this influence. It was, I was kind of an open book and had, didn't know what I was doing very much. Um, and also I, I'm someone who trains a lot and, but not in the terms, like, I wouldn't say it's all skiing focused training. Like I really do a ton of running and a ton of mountain running. And I, that's grown over the years since living in Alaska. And I've never been told to not do a running race or to not 
you know, sometimes it's hinted like, okay, it's October. Maybe you don't go for a 25 mile run in October before you're going to go do a time trial on snow, but it's never like, you can't do this. If you're passionate about something, Eric is there to like help you figure out a plan to get there and to get to your goals, not necessarily the goals that your teammate wants, but the goals that you want. And so that's been just amazing. Um, also like the one thing I also appreciate about his coaching style, which I don't know if this would be great for everyone, but it's, he lets you make the mistakes and right. kind of navigate them and then guides you once you need help. So for a great example is I had a year where I was super anemic in 20, uh, I guess it would have been summer 2016. Um, our team had been on this really big, like high volume training push thing. And like really more because everyone was doing epic mountain things and a lot of um, adventures. And I just like have struggled with iron my whole endurance sport career. And so um, by the time August rolled around, I was like very wrecked. And, you know, Eric's like, you should get your iron tested. So of course I do. And it's my ferritin's low, my hemoglobin's low. I'm, I'm like just anemic. And, um, and he let me kind of figure out, like, I was really stubborn. And I was like, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm going to keep training at this level. And he's like, I really think you need to drop your hours and like, you know, be a lot more focused on how you feel. But I was determined that like, I didn't want to get behind. And so I was trying to push through and then it eventually it didn't work. And I was being, I was really slow in training. And that's when he like stepped in and was that resource role, but he let me, you know, I wouldn't say this is great in some ways, but he also let me get to that point where I was willing then to give up my stubbornness and listen to him. And that I think was really good for me to trust him like that. I don't think that necessarily if he would have just came out and said, we're going to limit your training, I would have rebelled and it would have been probably worse. It was like, he let me learn and then he guided me. And I think that's something, you know, I can't put myself in his shoes, but that seems to be this like philosophy where he really lets the athlete, you know, run their career. And then he's there as a coach and it's not like the coach is running the career. And so I think that's something that I really appreciate. And like, especially as I get like further along in my career and I'm older and I, you know, kind of have my own ideas about how I respond to training. It's really helpful to be able to say, this is what I think is like going on with me, or this is what I think I need to do. What's your intake. And then he, you know, we kind of like work together on forming that plan. And I think that helps. I, it also, I think helps athletes who are older, like be able to continue in their careers strong. Like that's something I see at APU a lot is that we have a lot of athletes who have, you know, a decade long career and are finding success at the end of it and at the beginning. And I think that's because he lets you really take the reins in your training and in your goals. And so, um, you know, that's in a different experience than I've seen in other places. So that's, I, that's, that's great. That's more or less what I was talking about when I said how I think he's pretty unique in the United mm -hmm. States. From what I've seen, I've seen everything you've talked about and also when you're going through that process of determining your own decisions and your own path, he'll be there kind of quietly reminding you of very sound principles. Yes. You know, he's not telling you what to do. He just, he just reminds you of some principles, some basic principles that are, would be a good guiding principle for you to follow. And then he lets you either screw up or find success or whatever, you know, find your own path. And I think that's unique. And I agree. It's motivating because you have ownership. So mm -hmm. it's super motivating. 
um, I, I think there's a transition in an athlete's career where they go from trusting the coach, trusting the coach and deferring to the coach. Mm -hmm. And then at some point they say, okay, if I'm not going to make this team or if I'm gonna, it's going to be my fault, not the coach's yeah. fault. And they take ownership. And that's when you're at that stage, Eric's your guy, you know, for yeah, sure. Exactly. Yeah. I think it worked well with me having um, the coaches I had in high school and then going under Sten who like taught me how to ski a lot better, which was right. something I needed and, and had this really strong work ethic of hard work um, at NMU. And so that was great to just completely instill that into like my whole way I approach sport and then to come to APU and be under like Eric's reign with, and I, I really appreciate that I've had different coaches over my career because I think I've learned different things from each of them. And I also have learned that like a coach is there to guide. He's like, you said, he's not this, he or she is not there to be the only voice of reason that you're listening to you learn more and then you, you're the athlete, you know, you're the one on the race course. Like no matter how much a coach can help you, like if you're going to decide to slow down on that uphill, then like you're the one who's slowing down. So there are some kind of dictator type coaches out there and they've been pretty successful. Some of them, but um, I think especially when you get later in your career, that's just, this is not going to work for pretty much everybody. Yeah. And yeah. And every athlete's different. Like, you know, the approach that I need is probably very vastly different to the approach another athlete needs. So it, it definitely like it, it's really individual, I think. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Shifting gears. Um, you mentioned mountain running before. I wanted to ask you about that because I know you've been extremely successful and you're, and you're very fast. So you're a very fast mountain runner, not just, uh, you don't just use it for training, but you're also very fast in racing and mountain running in Alaska, especially is very popular and you know, it's a big sport. Um, so I guess that goes to the territory of being a cross country skier and living in the Anchorage area. Um, but I had a couple of questions. One would be, is mountain running as much of a passion for you as ski racing is? Um, I think it's, uh, well, thank you, by the way. I also would say like, I haven't done, um, very many races out of Alaska, which I was trying to change this year before COVID hit a little bit. I was actually signed up for like the national championships in Oregon before they were canceled. Um, but, you know, that being said, like, what has the times I have in Alaska and the races I've done in Alaska, like, I don't know what they'd compare to internationally or nationally. So, you know, it could be big fish, small pond kind of situation, which I'm fully aware that, like, when we have people that come up from outside into Alaska, sometimes those records and times are broken. So, um, you know, it's all relative. But um, for me, it is a pretty big passion. It's different in the sense that I'm starting, I only started racing, I guess it would have been like two or three years ago. Um, and doing like Mount Marathon. Um, and then some of the, I'm much better at uphills. So I like to do the uphill only ones. Um, but I would say, you know, it's funny, like the training you need to do for those skiing is completely the same. Like they're so complimentary and the way I ski train and the way I ski race where I am way better at distance and I'm way better at uphills. I don't even like need to do that much different to like go and do a mountain race and be able to do quite well in it. Um, the passion and the love of it is for sure the same. I love being in the mountains. Um, I don't do any roller skiing ODs. I don't, or like long, uh, roller skis ever. I literally do every single weekend, a long mountain run, um, this summer I got really into trying to do like really long ones. So I did like a, this 27 mile loop and then a 30 mile point to point. And, um, 
I was going to try to do this 40 mile point to point over resurrection pass, but I got a foot injury in July. And since then I have been kind of dealing with that, unfortunately, but, um, but I, I love it. And I really, I really like the racing. The community is just as quirky as skiing is. And you get these like people who are just so funny, but love to just like go and punish themselves, which, you know, obviously appeals to me as an endurance sport athlete. Um, I went down and I did the um, Tarahumaran marathon this March. Um, yeah, that's Blanco. yeah no, and you I went down there, but it didn't pan out because of COVID. No, I went down and I did the Mexico race. And then I was supposed to go do a race in Argentina and then also go do a vertical K and a 50K in Peru. Oh. But those were all canceled. So, oh. um, so I did the marathon, first marathon of my life. And off of no running training, which that was uh, maybe a very bad idea. Although I, I won the marathon, so that was really cool. Um, the big race there is the 80K and the 42K, the marathon is like, the lesser race, but I wasn't going to go run 50 miles off of no running. That wasn't, I wasn't that stupid. Um, but that was a really cool, like super cool experience to go and do, you know, this like mountain running race in a totally different culture. Um, I ran with all these different people and I got to practice my Spanish even during the race. But so that was like, you know, seeing that, like, I am so passionate about into the future, doing way more of that kind of stuff. Um, I'd love to go do some of the like vertical K's they have in Europe and just really jumping into kind of that mountain running um, scene. But it's not about the competition as much for me as it is about like, you get to go and like, even in Mount Marathon, this like iconic race in Alaska, that's super competitive and all these things. Like you're, you're running, hiking up this race and there's glaciers everywhere, the oceans behind you, like, I just love the access you can get and the better shape you're in and the faster you go, the further you can go in. And so like, that's where the passion lies for me. Um, and of course I love like getting your heart rate up and breathing hard, hiking up a hill. Like that's, that just is rewarding to me. And then you get to the top and you have this huge accomplishing feeling. So, um, I do, the running is something that I for sure am going to keep up. And I kind of hope that as like, you know, wherever skiing takes me in the next couple of years that I can still continue to run and have hopefully more opportunities to combine the two of them. So. Cool. That sounds awesome. That, that sounds like a great adventure too. Yeah, it's great. Alaska is a great place for it too. We really have a lot of trails. That's for sure. So let me ask you another question. Do you have a favorite race that you've ever done? You know, either uh, you had great emotions afterwards or memories. Can you describe that? Um, yeah, there's a couple, you know, super special races that like stick out. Um, I would say, of course, this is cliched, but I have to say like the Olympic 30 K was, um, was super important and, you know, a huge, like an amazing experience. I think the other thing about it that like is really kind of interesting is I had never done a world cup before I raced that I had raced in Europe on the Oprah circuit, but I had never done world champs, no world cup. So it not only was like an, an Olympic race, like obviously my first and not right now, only Olympic race I've ever done, but I also had never raced like all these people I watched on TV for years. And so lining up next to like, I mean, Mart, I wasn't next to Mart Bjorgen, but she was standing there in the starting area and like, uh, you know, Heidi Wang, all these like extremely Nordic ski famous people. And then also to be at the Olympics doing it. And like the Olympic rings were on the V boards that went around the whole course. And so 
I mean, I was so excited to be there. I don't remember feeling any pain in that entire race. It wasn't hard. Like, I mean, I was going as hard as I could, but it wasn't hard because it was just like such an experience. Mm. I remember the last, like probably 2K, my triceps were just totally cramped. Like I could barely double pull. And I was striding across this flat, just trying to go as hard as I could. And I don't remember feeling anything except excitement and just like so much happiness to be there. And so I think that sticks out in my brain as super special because of that like excitement and experience just to be out there racing and in the Olympics. And like, I mean, it's like a dream moment. I feel like I had to pinch myself during the race to be like, this is happening. Um, so that's, and that's then great. a couple, what? But that's good. That's a great relation. I have a question about that race. Yeah. You got 21st, which is a superb result. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you're, you know, I think you'd agree you're a distance specialist, but generally speaking, you're far stronger skating than classic. Yeah. <laughs> you ever think, man, I wonder how I would have done that day if this had been a skate race? I mean, maybe, like, I, I guess the thought hasn't really crossed my mind that much. It, like, I do think I would have enjoyed it better skating, but the one good thing is I had really great skis, like in terms of kick. I, um, this is going to sound odd, but like I, I'm decently, I'm stronger in classic at striding than I am at double pulling. Um, and I remember that race having good kick. Eric had been my like wax tech. And we had before the race, um, tried out these skis that were way too stiff for me, like way too stiff. And he was like, I don't know what you're, how you're going to kick these. And I was like, well, just put on tons of kick. Like, I don't care if they're slow on the downhills. Like I just want kick. And he did. And I remember striding up like, and just thinking, I feel like I'm hiking up a mountain right now. Like I have all the kick I need in the world. And maybe they were a little slow on the downhill, but like it made it really enjoyable. And so I don't know if it would have been that different in year like 30k skate is my favorite race of all time so granted i wish it could have been a 30k especially because that day was hot and it would have been slushy and everyone hates slushy skiing and i like slushy skiing so i would have been in my element but um i you know i can't say i could have done that much better i don't actually remember who was in front of me in the like results i don't i don't know it, it was different countries uh, or people from different countries but um, you know, I think it could have been fun to be maybe more in the mix of like the chase group if it would have been skate and I probably would have been more confident to go yeah. with a faster group, but you know, what can you say? It's in hindsight. So, so I have another question for you. Um, I think anyway, that you're without question, one of the strongest athletes on the circuit. You just mentioned you're not as strong on a double pull necessarily as you are striding and so on. But I think in general, you're really, really strong. And I'm wondering what you do for strength training. Oh, you're going you're gonna to laugh. Um, I don't really do strength very much. So I, well, I should, at NMU, we did like very standard Nordic skiing strength, uh, you know, pull-ups, dips, bench, the, you know, your typical stuff. Um, and I did strength all throughout college. And we also did a lot of specific strength on roller skis. So single sticking, double pulling on like gradual uphills or like fairly steep and at NMU we actually would bungee a teammate to us and then also pull them while you were single sticking and Felicia Gizar was my my teammate every time and so um we did that once a week all, all year and then even in the beginning of the winter when we'd be on snow we did it and I think that made me really strong um 
and very ski specific strength, which was really helpful because with a past of not having ski specific strength, that was like, you know, really useful. Um, when I came to APU, we do do, I guess, a standard strength. We have um, kind of like a general strength plan in the spring. And then we do max strength in the summer. So it's like shorter, like smaller reps. Um, and then general in the fall. And I did do that for a couple of years. And then I have a shoulder injury. I dislocated my shoulder a couple of times. So I stopped being able to do some of the like more shoulder intense stuff. And I also was finding that the more I was running and hiking, which I, I hike and run substantially more than my teammates do. And I was racing in the summer mountain running and I didn't want to have my legs blown out all the time. So I kind of stopped doing a lot of like of your more Olympic style lifting for legs. And I just started doing more like jumping, like spend stuff, uh, you know, kind of agility stuff. Yeah. And so now I do that. I do do a ton of core. That's the, that's like the main thing I do is core. And ever since COVID, I haven't been in a weight room since last fall, just because we don't have access to a gym right now. And so I do jumping, I do, um, I do lunges on a picnic bench and I do push-ups and core. So it's really untraditional in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of what you would expect. But I think the thing is, is genetically, I think I build muscle really easily. And then also like, I think I get really strong legs from hiking and running downhill. And I think the upper body stuff is from like roller skiing. And I am someone who trains a lot like volume wise. So that specific repeated strength, I think is helpful. And I don't do, I run and I roller ski. I don't really bike. I don't do a kind of a lot of other activities. So a lot of my training is very specific to skiing. So um, when I said, I think that you're one of the strongest in the circuit, I didn't mean strong in the weight room. I meant strong on skis. And there's oh, a big okay. difference in my opinion. I'm, um, there are a lot of different philosophies out there regarding strength and strength training. And let me just say, I, I think you can be a very fast Nordic skier without necessarily spending a lot of time in the weight room. There are mm -hmm. a lot of alternative ways of getting extremely strong and certainly running in the mountains. I mean, if you look at your legs and you watch how you ski, you've got strength coming out of yours. I mean, there's no, it's not like you're slower because you're not explosive enough or you're slower because you're, you don't have strength endurance. I mean, that's not a factor with you whatsoever, obviously. Yeah. So in terms of your upper body strength for skiing, what do you do? Are you just roller skiing? Do you do double pull workouts? Do you, no, you I, I have, um, I mo it's mostly roller skiing and I mostly do a lot of skate roller skiing because I have shin problems on roller skis with classic uh -huh. and I have uh, this weird thing where my hands go numb if I double pull a lot. So I can't do straight continuous double pull um, or my hands go numb. So I do, you know, it's mostly roller skiing. Um, and then we do a lot of bounding, which is, you know, you can use your arms a fair amount bounding. Sure. I hike with poles sometimes too, but um, I do find that when the season starts, like we're lucky in Alaska, we get on snow usually in October yeah. and those first couple skis on snow, especially classic are like rough on your arms. But I think that that gives me time before the season starts typically to like kind of build back that specific strength of, you know, when you're roller skiing, you have a, you're hitting hard ground. So you're getting a great return 
And then snow, not, you're not always getting that. And so you need to almost have like a different kind of strength that I feel like I'm able to develop in the month before the season every year. So. Sure. Oh, well, that's interesting. And I, and I like hearing that. I think so often we all hear, especially young athletes, but we all hear there's only one way to get from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. And these interviews we've been doing definitely have illustrated made that there are many routes to get to elite, be elite skier into success. And so here's another one. And uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so here's a question that, um, that has occurred to me while we were talking. Do you consider yourself to be talented as a Nordic skier? No. <laughs> well, I, there's the one thing I think I'm talented in is that or lucky in is that I have a body that can absorb a lot of training and I'm going to knock on wood right now, but I don't typically get injured. Um, so I'm really lucky with like, I haven't had major, major overuse injuries. I have had a couple like traumatic injuries, like, in, you know, I tore a ligament in my knee and I had knee surgery and that was an ordeal for a year, but I haven't, I'm not someone who gets, um, you know, gets a ton of issues with a lot of training. And because I started skiing so late, I think I needed to have a lot of years where I was training at a high volume and a lot of actual skiing to learn how to ski efficiently. Because when you see kids who have started skiing at age two, they naturally learned how to be really fluid on skis. And that's not something that comes naturally to me. So that talent aspect No, I, I'd say I'm talented in in being able to absorb a lot of training, but outside of that, like, I mean, I've never had a VO2 max test or any of those kind of things, but I don't think I have anything special at all. It's like a lot of hard work and years, you know, I started now I'm 29 and I started skiing at like age 14, 15. So now I've had 15 years of training behind me, but like, that's a long time, you know, that's not, it's hard work. It's not talent. (laughs) Let me tell you something, a quick anecdote, and I bet you probably identify with this. When I was a kid, I grew up in Massachusetts, and, you know, I was just typical mass hole. Of, I had like, some people that helped me out and such, but for the most part, I was under-trained, under-informed, under-styled, you know, <laughs> yeah. just, just this, like, loser from Massachusetts driving <laughs> up to the prep school kids up in uh, northern New England and getting my ass handed to me every weekend, you know, kind of a thing, starting yeah, out. Yeah. And I... I progressed after a little while. I needed to grow. I was very small. And after a while, and then I made the US ski team and I was uh, basically the top junior in the country for a couple of years. And, you know, when you're, when you're a junior, you're wearing all the USA stuff, all of a sudden everyone's like, whoa, you know? Yeah. And I, I was at Stratton Mountain School um, at a race. I obviously I didn't go to Stratton, um, at a race. And all these, I heard just vaguely all these kids going, hey, wow, wow, look at that, you know? And, and Sperry Caldwell walked in. <laughs> uh, for those that don't know, Sperry is this legendary junior coach from Stratton yeah. School in New England. And he walked in and he, he called everyone together and said, hey, do you see that guy over there? And he used to mentor me. He took an interest in me when I was this mass old kid with no help and whatever. And, <laughs> and he used to call me Mr. Knee Drive because my classic skiing technique was all messed up. And anyway, so he took everyone together and said, do you see that kid over there? Uh, Ian Harvey, the US ski team member and, you know, top dog and all that. And he goes, that's not talent. That is the product of hard work. Yeah. <laughs> and I might have been insulted, but I knew exactly where he was coming from. And I've, I've never forgotten that. And that made me so proud because I am sick of people telling me how talented I am. I've worked yeah. hard and I haven't gotten exactly. credit for it, you know? Yeah. So I think yeah. you probably identify with that. Yeah. <laughs> you might Definitely. look talented, but it's because you worked your tail off and absorbed all that training. And you thought, you know, like I had 
I had index cards over my wall with technique tips and training tips and just I was I was fighting for every second I could possibly get. And then thankfully I grew. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it was like, wow, I'm really fast all of a sudden. It yeah. was a blessing for me to be really short and weak and then yeah. fight for everything and then to grow and be like, wow, no kidding. This is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> like this is how they were all doing it. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I figured you'd identify with that. Yes, definitely. Okay. So I have a question. Um, I'm the I'm the glove designer. And I like to ask athletes what their favorite glove model is and why. And I know you've got chronically cold hands, so this will be a little different from some of the other answers that we've heard. Um, but it'll also be very interesting for those that have cold hands themselves. Yeah, well, I my favorite glove is, and now I'm probably going to mix up the name because I always, well, it, to anyone who's listening or watching, I literally ask Ian what the warmest glove is. And I say, that's what I want. Um, and by glove, I now mean mitten because I only wear mittens. Right. But Thermo Plus was like the the one I was using last year, I believe. So, um, and, but so you have a new one. The mitten that you usually use is the puffy one, right? Is that yes, right? Yes, yes. So that's the Toasty yeah. Thermal Mitten. Yeah, Toasty Thermal Mitten. And then there was... Mittens, like that really puffy, soft, super insulated. Yes, puffy. exactly. And then yeah. the Thermal yeah. Split and I, is, um, the, is a split finger mitt that is kind of neoprene with thin slate insulation inside. Yeah, and that's, I, I think I'm trying that out this year, but I, I race, like, I race and train exclusively and wear for casual wear the Toasty um, Thermal Mitten. Yeah. And I love it. Like, I mean, my hands are cold and I have Renault's and I, I mean, it's like, I can't wear a glove really unless it's like 70 degrees. I actually, I do wear, um, the Toco classic gloves in the summer. Right. <laughs> so, um, but that's probably not what most people do. Reese Hahnemann always made fun of me about it. He's like, you're, and to be honest, so it's September here and it's been below freezing for sure. But I like am wearing the toco mittens already for her. Well, and I especially running because my hands get really cold when I run, and so I I wear the mittens year round. Cool. We have a mitten mm -hmm. that you that you ordered, I believe, already for the coming year. It's the toasty thermal split mitt. So it's like the toasty yes, thermal mitten, yeah. but it's it's super overstuffed and it's a split mitt. So we'll see how you like that one. I'm excited. Okay. <laughs> cool. So you want to talk about your work? Sure. I think it's interesting for people just to get to know you better and so on. You've got a whole myriad of jobs. Let me just, just kind of whip through them all and how you manage things. But we've got a few other questions. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, um, well, I, ski racing doesn't pay the bills for me yet. So I work a lot. Um, and I, I kind of mentioned that I was doing a master. So I, I have a master's from Northern Michigan and it's in public administration. And then I have a master's from APU in business administration. And so after I finished that MBA at APU, I started teaching at APU as an adjunct professor um, in writing. And then I also um, work for a nonprofit in Anchorage called Anchorage Downtown Partnership. And essentially we run the business improvement district for downtown. And so I've worked there since 2017. Um, I also tutor at a, uh, tutoring place in town. I teach ACT and SAT courses. And then I, this semester I'm tutoring at APU as well. And so um, it's a lot. There's weeks that are a little more stressful than others. Um, but I, something really important to me is balance, um, both in skiing and in life. And I have always liked having other stuff going on. So it's really useful to me to go. I train in the morning 
And then in a normal year, I go to work and I'm at work all day. And then I train after work and then I go home. Um, now I work from home because of COVID, but it still is that schedule of like, what would I be doing in the afternoons if I didn't have a job? I'm not sure. Um, I, my class for APU is online and I teach in the evenings. So I have had a, some interesting experiences teaching from Europe at like 5 a.m. during period one. But, you know, it's all, it's, it's a good life lesson. I don't think that when I'm done skiing that life is going to be, you know, any more easier or have more time on my hands. I think that you learn how to balance everything you're doing. And I love using the other skills I have in life and using my education in my jobs. And so it's really important to me to have this outlet of, you know, a career that I'm building for after skiing's done. Um, and just to have different circles I'm operating in, I think it's really healthy. Cool. That sounds great. And I like the comment you made about balance and also about using your brain and using your education. And I really think that Back in my day, there were a lot of uh, World Cup type athletes that would more or less play video games all day between races and workouts. And there was nothing going on between the years and no balance whatsoever. You get sick and you're absolutely only in the dumps. There's nothing to yeah. kind of get you to forget about it for a while and to go back. And I think it's really healthy. And of course, I'm not sure, I guess some people do better in different ways, but I'm not sure how healthy it is to be so one-dimensional as that. You know, mm -hmm. I don't, yeah, I just, it's not something it like in your whole life, you're not going to be one dimensional, you know, it's, yeah. or I, I feel that like in your entire life, you're going to be balancing things always, whether it's going to be job and a family, or it's going to be, you know, multiple jobs or different opportunities. And so the earlier you're able to learn that the better, and it's going to just help you in the long run. Like, you know, I work a lot of hours a week. In fact, maybe almost at, if you add up, cause I work on the weekends often to make up for time training and it's a full-time job if you add them all together, but it's not bad. It's great. And the other thing in this day and age, in this sport, in the United States, financially, if you want to make it work, it, that's one of my sacrifices. So I used to feel guilty that I was working and not prioritizing resting between training and then I kind of realized that in my situation, working is what is making me being able to ski race. You know, I can't win a race if I can't go to the race because I can't buy the plane ticket. So I think that instead of being stressed out about it, I just see it as this is part of it. And then I don't have that kind of like guilt or even resentment about how I am not doing the appropriate recovery. It's just my recovery looks different. Sounds good. I agree. It's, it's, but it's also fascinating to hear about. I think it we give a lot of people courage to take your path instead of insisting or thinking they have to go the full-time athlete path, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm, I'm on a personal level, very curious about what your strengths and weaknesses are. <laughs> well, I guess I should probably start with weakness <laughs> to end on a good note. Um, huh. You know, it varies. I, I was thinking about that. You, you always get asked this in job interviews and I, I actually, I was doing some job interviews earlier this spring, um, trying to get some teaching positions. And this was always a question that came up, but I think my weakness um, or one of my weaknesses, especially when it relates to sport too, is a little bit like overreactiveness um, to changes. You know, as much as I say, like I'm balanced and whatnot, that's something that you have to strive for. It's not there every day. And I am somebody who, you know, one thing that skiing has forced me to do is to deal with not knowing what my season looks like, especially when you're kind of in one of those athletes who's 
bouncing between Super Tour and World Cup. Like I don't sit down in the beginning of the season and say, this is all the races I'm going to do because I have to qualify for a lot of those races or get spots or whatever. And so to learn that flexibility has been a huge challenge in kind of my life and also in my skiing life. Um, I struggle with it. And one thing I do when I'm stressed about something is I make these impulsive decisions that I sometimes regret later. So whether it's like flying somewhere to not, you know, flying home from the world cup or something, or, um, you know, being stressed out about the financial part of something and making a decision to not go to a race that then later I'm like, I should have gone to that race. Um, so that's like, I guess that flexibility and that calmness is something I'm working on. I'm very type A with energy and that leads me to be type A with like wanting to know what's going on. So um, that's a weakness that I guess is a little unusual maybe. And it, it's changed with my career if we think about skiing and just growing up a little bit, like what I am doing now would have been a struggle for me in college when I liked knowing, you know, and is the carrot and you're just, these are the races you're doing till then and having that like structure. Um, and now as in my sixth year, I think, yeah, of being professional skiing, I guess it's, I'm better at that and I'm learning how to deal with it and be flexible and have races be canceled, which this year has been a huge, um, something I'm working on. And even looking, I'm not super great. You know, I've had a lot of people tell me to do meditation and things like that. I am somewhat of an anxious person. And that's something I'm always trying to work on in terms of like how it relates to racing and then even just how it relates to like life in general. So that's probably my bigger, biggest weakness. Um, my strengths, I would say, is just that I'm willing to put the nose to the grindstone and really just work, work, work. Um, and I have a lot of tolerance for, you know, like a high, high, crazy life stress. Um, you know, just having my whole week scheduled out and not necessarily like set schedule, but just having things I have to do and get done. That's not something that is really that difficult for me. I'm able to just go down that list and get the stuff done and be ready. Um, you know, whether it's at work or whether it's in ski training or whether it's planning for something, I, I would say that's probably a strength, but yeah. <laughs> oh, thanks. That's, that's interesting for me to learn about you. Mm -hmm. So two more questions, at least. First would be, what is something about you that might surprise people if they were to find out? My opinion is there's a whole lot of them, but <laughs> I'd love to hear as much as possible because I'm sure it'll be entertaining. Yeah, well, I guess it's in, so I think one thing that's somewhat surprising is the like juxtaposition within myself of being somebody who's a very like standard high achiever and then being rather unconventional. So I have, I don't like following the trend. And I think a lot of people have realized this by seeing me at ski races in like five jackets and gear that looks like it's from Goodwill sometimes. And it's not. I really struggle with like following what you're supposed to look like and do. And so that's like a, something like I've had teammates who Becca Rohrbach has told me, she's like, do you just try to look weird? And I'm like, yes, but no, like I just, I put on a hat and it's upside down and backwards and I don't even realize or care. And then I do the race and, and in the pictures, the hat's backwards and I didn't realize. And it's like this like thing that like, as someone who's type A, I should be, care about my image, I guess. And I just don't at all. So that's something that might be surprising for people to hear. Um, a random fact, 
I love Thai food and I love baking. I have a Thai blog um, that me and my boyfriend review all the restaurants in Anchorage with. Hmm. Um, and we write about each of the restaurants and we have um, specific, excuse me, specific criteria that we grade them on. And they're not really that conventional. Like food is one criteria and the other one is like atmosphere and how many condiments they have on the table is very important because you need to be able to like adjust your Thai food to different levels of taste. Um, and I'd say probably the, the third thing is I am obsessed with food blogs, like baking blogs in particularly and cookbooks. And so the biggest thing I do to de-stress is I read like Smitching Kitchen is a really famous food blog in the United States. And I read through her recipes from like years ago. And that's just like this weird way. I do it on the road a lot when I'm homesick. I just read this baking blog and it's like the, the way I de-stress. So kind of three really odd things about me. Yeah, cool. Okay. Um, last question, I think. Do you have a mantra or philosophy that can be summed up in a few words? You know, I, I've thought about this a fair amount and I, I really don't have, have something specific because I think it changes time to time. My biggest thing for 2020, what I'm working on is positivity. And so I literally am always this year, I'm trying to remind myself to find the positive in things. So whether that's like, you know, an email goes wrong at work, find the positive, like maybe it's funny or maybe it gives me a chance to reach out to that board member and like, you know, have established a better connection or something. Or if it's pouring rain here in Anchorage and we have to go train, at least I'm not injured and I get to go train. So I think being positive, my mom's thing when we were growing up, which is I kind of ironic and I use this a lot is mind over matter. And I try to think of that positivity thing as part of that mind over matter. Like it might be horrible outside and I might be freezing, but what's telling me I'm freezing is my mind. So if I say, Hey, this isn't that bad, then it's not going to be that bad. And so kind of trying to use that, especially this year with everything being crazy um, has been helpful, but yeah, most of my mantras are all about like being tough or getting through something. Cool. So I like that. Okay. Um, I guess that's it. Um, I want to keep this at an hour. So I really appreciate you doing this with me. And yeah, thank you for having um, me. it's been uh, a great opportunity to get to know you better. And for me, for the listeners, this would be an interview that kind of highlights the path. It's the non-traditional path where a person started skiing relatively late for a skier. And then even at, having had taken that path, wasn't necessarily too serious about it, was having fun and enjoying the, the moment, so to speak. And even after making um, World U23 team, still hadn't even decided to, to continue competing after college. And then despite all that, um, achieved a 21st in the Olympics while working more or less a full-time job that's remarkable and very interesting and I think empowering for us to hear. Um, Rosie, you've also got a captivating personality, at least I think you do. Yeah. And um, <laughs> I hope that comes across in this interview as well. So thank you very much for doing this. And uh, I'll look forward to seeing you whenever that is. I'll definitely look forward to seeing you next time. Yes, thank you for having me. I appreciate it.